Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week of Chris's Courses as we're going through our current series, Questions in Genesis, looking at the first foundational book of the Bible to see what it wants us to ask about who God is and who we are. We're going to be picking up today in chapter 34, and we're actually closing out the story of Jacob, at least with Jacob as the main character. He, he will stick around and, and be a figure in Joseph's story, who's going to be our, our next main character. And so uh, we're, we're kind of wrapping up him uh, in the central role, though. You know, last week, we saw the kind of pivotal story of him wrestling with God as you know this uh, very obvious, powerful metaphor for uh, the way he's lived his life, his relationship with God and with other people is just fighting everybody all the time. And uh, and God gives him through this a new identity. He gives him the name Israel that points to that idea of him struggling with everyone. And yet the ongoing question is, how much has he actually changed, though? Right? Most of us don't have one moment that completely changes our personality and everything that we do. So even if Jacob is is better now, uh, everything is not quite uh, totally different. And, you, and again, that's reflected even in the fact that he's still usually called Jacob and not called Israel. Maybe that means a little something there. Uh, one of the positive things we did see last time, though, is that he made peace with his brother Esau, right? the one that he wronged in the beginning. That's why he had to run away from home because he stole his blessing. We saw that they, uh, even though they didn't end up going to the same place, they uh, they went their separate ways at the end of the story, Jacob did return his blessing to Esau. And so there was some reconciliation there. So today we have, uh, unfortunately, a kind of difficult story about uh, Dinah, the, the daughter of Jacob. And so just right up front, I want to give a content warning there for sexual violence and mistreatment of women. So if that's uh, too much for you, then you know you can pass on this one if you need to. But before we get to that, before we actually get to, to these chapters in Genesis, I want to talk about another issue uh, that also may be a little bit challenging for some of us as we talk about the authorship of Genesis and when it was uh, written, when it reached its final form. Because I know the, the common assumption that most of us have heard is that it was written by Moses. Um, but if you look in the actual text of Genesis, it's anonymous. That's that's a tradition. You know, most of our study Bibles and things will say that at the front. Uh, but the the book of Genesis itself, in in the words on the page, don't say who the author is. And so it, it's a question I think is worth looking into. And we'll talk about why this might be important uh, after we go through some of the the facts and the data here. So for one thing, I think it's important to point out uh, the difference between in the ancient world and our world, that they were very much uh, an oral culture, that what mattered most to them was having stories passed down by people that you trusted, uh, not just to write everything down immediately like we do in, in our modern context. All right. Everything gets written down. We, we have our phones with us all the time so we can uh, write down anything that happens and share that with the world. Well, that's, that's not necessarily the way that it worked back then. Uh, and so we shouldn't assume that when something is written down is also when that story was was made up or, you know, come up with. So even if we I'm going to argue that, you know, some of these stories were written down later, that's not saying that it didn't exist before that. So as we're looking at a question like this about authorship, uh, we, we look at the external evidence and the internal evidence, uh, right? External evidence is things outside of the book that are said about it. 
And then internal evidence is, is what's in the book itself. And so internal evidence should get more weight. And so it's, it's external evidence that says there's that tradition of it being by Moses. Uh, but that really didn't start becoming um, a common attribution until the Greco-Roman period. So this is, is much later, actually. Um, Jesus himself, well, he talks about the book of Moses, but there he's referring to Exodus, not Genesis. And again, book of Moses is, is also a little more vague than saying that he definitely wrote it, right? He's, he's the main character in uh, four out of the five books of Moses. Um, but today we're just talking about Genesis. So as we go to the internal evidence and, and look at the actual text of, of the book, like I said, it's anonymous. Um, actually, most biblical books are. The, the titles that we have in our English Bibles, um, those are handed down through time, and there's reasons for a lot of them. But uh, if you just read the words in, in the books themselves, a lot of times it doesn't say who it's by. Now, the reason that I think um, we can question this or wonder about this is if you look at a lot of specific examples in the book of Genesis, there are plenty of examples that reflect a time period well after Moses, uh, probably in the point that the Israelites were already in the promised land. Um, so a good example of this is in chapter 12. This is in the story of, of Abraham. It says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's 12.6. So saying at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Well, what does that imply? That implies at this time, they're not, which would have to be well after the conquest during at least the monarchy uh, after they had gotten rid of the Canaanites. Now, Moses dies before they enter the land, before they start that conquest. That doesn't really reflect his time. Uh, chapter 14, verse 14 makes reference to the city of Dan. But then we learn in the book of Joshua, which is again after Moses, that that city originally was called Leshem, and it wasn't renamed that until that, that conquest period, right? Dan is one of the, the sons of Jacob, uh, so it wouldn't make sense for that city to be called Dan back in chapter 14 before uh, Dan even uh, was alive. Uh, a, a verse that we're going to look at today in chapter 34 talks about uh, someone committing an outrage in Israel, uh, which you know, at that point, Israel just should refer to Jacob, but it sounds like it's more of uh, referring to a nation with customs. Uh, in chapter 36, where it's listing all the kings of Edom, uh, it says these are the kings of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now that, that could go either way, but again, it, to me, it implies that Israel has a king at the time of writing. And then there's this phrase, to this day, it gets repeated about five or six times, which again, sounds like it's much later when the nation is established. Now, I'm not the first to make these observations, um, and it's not just modern scholars. Uh, you can go back to the 4th century, to the 12th century, to the 17th century, and you'll find writers who, who notice these things and ask this sort of question. Um, so there's, there's plenty of good evidence to think that this is from a little bit later period. And there's also evidence, this is a bigger conversation we'll just touch on, that what was really going on with the writing of Genesis is that the writer or the editor was collecting and retelling Israel's stories, right? So they're, they're not just, again, coming up with them all by themselves. They're, they're passing on multiple stories that, that Israelites were telling. And so that explains uh, why in many cases we've seen already that there are multiple accounts of specific events. Right? The, the clearest example is the very beginning. We have two creation stories in chapter one and chapter two. 
right? They're both true because they're telling us what God is like, uh, but they tell the story differently. And so those are probably from, from different sources there. Sometimes different sources, uh, their editor or writer was kind of mashing them up, putting them together. So in the flood story, uh, there's, there's some reflection of that, right? Was it a raven or a dove? Is it two of every animal or are there seven of the clean animals? Those probably come from different sources that they put together. We've seen repeated stories like God making the covenant with Abraham, uh, Abraham passing his wife off as his sister, right? Those are just maybe the same story told in different ways. Another way that we can track some of these different sources or stories is in the different names that are used for God. Because in some places, it'll use just the word God, that, that title. And in others, it'll use God's name, uh, Yahweh, which in English Bibles will be translated as Lord with all capital letters. Uh, and that's kind of telling because you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 6, where uh, the Lord is speaking to Moses and uh, it says there that people don't know this name. They don't know the name Yahweh. They don't know the name the Lord before that point, right? So that's, that's one tradition that people thought. And then there's another tradition that says people were always using that name. So that may seem uh, troubling to us, but it shows that they were more concerned about keeping all these traditions than telling one single cohesive story, right? That's that's what we would want to do. That's what we would expect, right? The story's not correct or true if it's not one single cohesive story. But to, in their mindset, it's we don't want to lose any of these different traditions. And so we're going to keep them all and find a way to harmonize them as best we can. But it's more important to keep them than to, to cut some out. Really, it's, it's very similar to what we have in the New Testament, where we have four Gospels. Right? Each of the four writers were collecting and reorganizing stories that they knew about Jesus, and they were telling them in a different way to make slightly different points about who Jesus was or to speak to their community about why the Jesus story matters to them. Uh, right? the, the church didn't just decide, well, we want to pick the one correct gospel. They knew that all four were important, even though they do tell the story differently, and sometimes the details don't line up. Um, again, it's more important to keep these different traditions than to just uh, harmonize them, which is, again, always our impulse, but not the impulse of ancient people. And, and that's what we want to do is to see how would they tell these stories? What were they trying to communicate with them? So why does it matter? Right? I'm not just sharing all this just so you know, although I think it's important since that, that stuff is out there. It's not hard to find. Um, the, why it matters, though, is to ask, what situation is Genesis addressing? In the ancient world, you didn't write just to give objective history, right? To say, here's just the facts of what happened. Uh, no biblical book is trying to do that. Again, that's a modern concern, even though you know most, most writing is not as objective as we like to think it is. And so it, it, they were writing to make a point, to, to say something about their own time period using these stories. And, and again, you can see that through the Bible of, of stories being retold at different points uh, because uh, the people being written to are in different places. And they want to make sure that these stories of what God has done can, can speak in their moment. And so is this Israel in the wilderness? Is this under the united monarchy? Or is this during the exile? Uh, it, it seems like, you know, where, well, wherever you answer that is going to shape the way that we read it. Um, it does seem like there's good evidence that it is later during that, the, the time of the exile. And so uh, this crisis is causing Israel to reflect on its identity and, and who it is. 
uh, and if God is still faithful to them. And so this book is, is pointing towards that in some ways. So we're going to see that play out some in the stories we're looking at today in chapter 34 of how Israel is getting along with its neighbors and whether or not it's, it's being faithful. So again, like I said, this is kind of a difficult story uh, with the rape of Dinah, but uh, let's, let's get into this here in chapter 34. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the region. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl to be my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his cattle in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, just as the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry, because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The heart of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall live with us and the land will be open to you. Live and trade in and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor with you and whatever you say to me I will give. Put the marriage present and gift as high as you like and I will give whatever you ask of me. Only give me the girl to be my wife. So Jacob and his family are now living in Shechem, this area in Canaan. They're back in the promised land. And again, it's this question of how are we going to live at peace in this place? So I wonder what your reactions were to hearing that story, uh, especially with with what happens to Dinah. Uh, What would you do in this situation? How do you feel? Is it better or worse that Shechem wants to marry her afterwards? Again, these these are difficult stories. You know, when, when I was teaching, I definitely wanted to hear from from the women uh, and, and get their perspective on this. But even I can tell that this is uh, hard, and the, there's no right answer here. Right? It's it's not good that she has to marry her rapist, but it would also in their culture be terrible for her to be left alone because now she's he's she's lost her value, right? And and nobody's probably going to want to marry her. So it's kind of like the best option, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, you can contrast it with uh, the story of Amnon and Tamar, uh, another uh, story of sexual violence, where after he uh, uh, rapes his sister, he wants nothing to do with her anymore um, and just kind of leaves her and she's never marries. So again, this this is not a good solution but it, it could be worse, but I don't want to make it sound like that makes it okay in any sort of way. Uh, but this is, this is kind of their culture. You see here that Dinah is voiceless. Through this whole chapter, she never speaks. Um, she, things are done to her. Things are done on her behalf. Uh, but she's treated like property. She doesn't have any agency. And unfortunately, that was the reality for many women in this time period and, and for many women around the world today. So we don't have to accept this as face value. And we can see that this is a place where uh, we have uh, understood better and and give women a voice and, and don't treat them as property. Now, uh, a place, though, that you also see that is in this language that will show up several times of her being defiled. Uh, for one thing that, again, if, if a woman either belongs to her husband or to her father, 
um, well, she's lost some value if that's happened, right? And it's going to be harder to, to marry her off. Uh, but this word for defile is also very common in the book of Leviticus, used for ritual purity. So there's a lot in here that could be foreshadowing or kind of pointing to later relations between Israelites and the Canaanites. Because in Leviticus, there's a lot of talk of you shouldn't practice what these Canaanites practice because that will make you impure, that will defile you if you serve their gods or, or engage in these other things. So I think that the use of that specific word is kind of pointing to that a little bit. And like I said, this uh, phrase, uh, this being an outrage in Israel, doesn't make sense unless Israel is an established nation. You know, up to this point, we haven't had any perspective to say that, you know, the Canaanites are all are all evil and you shouldn't interact with them or even intermarry with them. That hasn't been uh, prohibited uh, unless you're reading in from from later commands. Uh, but as we're going to see, there are obviously some clear echoes to conquest narratives and those sort of things in this story. So Jacob, our, who's been our main character so far, what he does here is he, he holds his peace instead of immediately doing something against Shechem for what happened to his daughter. Um, his sons want to do something and they get upset. Um, but you kind of wonder, what is, what is Jacob doing here? Does this reflect positively on him or not? Um, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's good that he's not going out and doing something terrible immediately, but that's always kind of been who Jacob is, right? That he's going to wait a little bit and make a plan um, and and not rush off without thinking about it. And so it doesn't seem too out of character that, that he's not doing anything yet. So uh, let's see what's, what's going to happen. So I'll pick up in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because they had def- he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are, and every male among you be circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we'll live among you and become one people. But if you'll not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his family. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These people are friendly with us. Let them live in the land and trade in it, for the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree to live among us, to be become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their animals be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live among us. And all who went out of the city gate he did Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So we see here that Jacob's sons uh, have learned their father's deceitful ways, right? We don't always get the narrator coming in and uh, telling us what's happening, uh, but it says that they're acting deceitfully here when, when they're making this bargain with the people of uh, Shechem. You know, I think it's worth asking, even though I don't, I know I don't really want to give an answer, but what bad habits do we accidentally teach our children? Uh, do we, even if we realize our mistakes, do we still pass them on? You know, I've got young kids and I can think of plenty of times that I hear them repeating things that I've said and, and I try to explain to them why it's, it's okay when I do that, but it's not okay when you do. And, 
sometimes that might be true. Sometimes that's really not true at all. And they're calling me out. You know, I think of the old uh, anti-drug commercial from the 80s where, uh, you know, this father finds his his son's drug paraphernalia under the bed. And, and he says, you know, where'd you learn to do this? And and the, the son says, I learned it from you, dad. Uh, and so, you know, it, it seems kind of son, funny now, but the idea that even if you you tell your children not to do something or to do something, if, if you're not doing that, if, if they've seen what you do, that's going to have an influence on them. So uh, it's something we all kind of worry about. What baggage are we giving our kids? What are they going to have to be in therapy for? Uh, we just hope it's, it's nothing too severe. Uh, but we shouldn't be surprised that uh, deceitful Jacob has uh, fathered children who often act in deceitful ways too. So the deal that they make is, okay, if every man in, in this city will get circumcised, then you can marry Dinah and we'll all intermarry with you. We'll kind of mix together, which I would think would be a pretty tough sell to Shechem's people, but I guess not. Uh, it says he's very honored. So I guess everybody loves him so much that, that they're willing to do this. Now, part of the, the reason that they get on board with this plan is uh, they know they're going to get all of Israel's stuff. They mentioned that in verse 23, right? Well, aren't we going to get all the cattle and things? You know, Jacob has has been very blessed with material wealth up to this point. And this is clearly several years later, like these, all his kids are grown. So you can only assume that he's grown in, in wealth quite a bit. So, you know, there's greed motivating their willingness to go through with this this procedure. And, and I don't know specifically how different, cultures at this time felt about circumcision. You know, we know that the Israelites were not the only ones that did this. Uh, But again, I would think that would be pretty hard to to sell to the people, but they go ahead with it. Now, unfortunately, one of the reasons they do is that the Shechemites, uh, unfortunately, think that Israel is very friendly and there's there's room for everybody, Uh, which again, we're going to see is not the case. Uh, But we still have to find out, okay, what exactly does... Uh, are Jacob's sons planning? What What is their deceit with asking them to be circumcised? So let's pick up in verse 25. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's do- brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. They said, Should our sister be treated as a whore. So again, this this is not an easy story with any easy answers, uh, but this is this is what the brothers decide to do. You know, honestly, it's it's not a bad strategy if you want to incapacitate every man in the city, get them to go through that medical procedure, right? When so while they're recovering, that's when they they go and kill them all. But uh, I mean, think about how how terrible this is. They're using a religious ritual for murder right? Circumcision is meant to be something sacred to the people of Israel that sets them apart from everyone else. And now they're using that as, you know, a military strategy so they can go kill a bunch of people. 
uh, if that doesn't hit you hard, I mean, think about if baptism were substituted, if you use baptism as a way to, you know, trick somebody and, and then kill them and take their stuff. Uh, so this clearly, clearly goes beyond justice or even simple revenge, right? If they had just gone and killed Shechem, you, know, you could understand that, even though that's uh, a bit extreme. But killing all of the men of the city is, is just, there's absolutely no defense for that. And you see kind of their, probably the reasoning for why they do that is so they can take their stuff, right? They steal everything, including the women, the wives, and the children of these men. See, this is one of the problems with revenge is that it doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it usually perpetuates the original problem, right? They're upset because their sister is, is defiled or, or mistreated. And what are they doing to all of these women and to their children? I doubt that these women wanted to go uh, back with the sons of Jacob. So it's the same thing, right? We, we just keep doing the same things to each other when revenge is what's, we're, what we're focused on. Now, if we're arguing, or I'm arguing, I guess, that in some ways this story is foreshadowing the, the conquest stories of Israel taking over Canaan, even there, the, the goods aren't just for them to take for themselves. They're supposed to be devoted to God. Now, that's a whole other issue we're not going to get into today, but it just shows that God is literally not in this story. God is never mentioned. God never speaks. This is just them doing what they think they should do, and we're seeing the terrible results. Now, Jacob is the only one that uh, complains about this. And uh, what's his concern? His concern really is about their reputation and uh, his own future in the land, right? It's really just saying, you know, they, they're, they outnumber us, so they could come and kill us now if, if you made everybody upset. Again, doesn't seem like too, too much of a sign of change. Um, you kind of wish he had done something about his daughter, right? That's their, their final question to him. Uh, that that ends unanswered of, well, should our sister have been treated like this? You know, Jacob doesn't seem to have much concern about that. Uh, he's concerned about what's going to happen to him. And unfortunately, this is often what we see, again, with, with how women were treated in, in this time, that as much as they'll talk about her being defiled or might say something about her honor, they're really thinking about themselves, right? What happened to Dinah only matters because it's our sister, right? That's somehow affected their own honor. And that's why they do this. And again, even around the world, there's still honor killings that happen for basically the same reasons. It still goes back to the men and how they see themselves and the women are left voiceless. Uh, and so again, Genesis is not condoning these things or, or saying this is how it should be. It's just showing this is where humanity was at and we can do better. And I'm thankful that in a lot of ways we, we have tried to but we still need to pay attention to that and make sure that we're honoring the voices of victims, and not just deciding on their behalf what, what they need when it really is just about us. All right, so uh, chapter 35 wraps up the story of Jacob. We're not going to read through all of it. Uh, but we do see in here that God uh, is clearly now his God. You know, he, he mentions to his family that yeah, if you've got any idols or foreign gods, we're going to get rid of them. You know, we haven't really heard a whole lot about that before. But you can just assume it probably was happening, right? This uh, monotheistic worship of, of the Lord was not immediately widespread. And, and But Jacob is trying to be more committed to the Lord and get rid of these other gods here. Now, one of the things we see in this chapter is there's a lot of repetition, right? Repeating previous stories, which again, 
could be evidence of multiple traditions, and they just wanted to preserve both of them. So you see him building an altar in verse 1 and 7, which he had done that back in, in chapter 33, verse 20. Uh, one of the most obvious in verse 10 is God appears to him and changes his name to Israel, which, again, we, we already saw that very dramatic moment during his wrestling match. God, again, affirms the promise about giving the land and offspring. And then finally, he sets up a pillar in Bethel again, which that's that's probably there as sort of a bookend, right? Because that's that site in Bethel is where Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending. And so that was, you know, very early in his story as he's fleeing for his life. Uh, and so here at the end, he's, he's doing the same thing as a way of kind of showing that he's come full circle. Again, not that he's completely changed, but he has come back to where he started and he does have a new identity and, and a new, newer, truer relationship with God. And one of the other things that happens at the end here is that Rachel, his uh, favorite wife, dies giving birth to uh, a last son. Uh, she tries to give him this sad name, but Jacob changes it to Benjamin. And so now the 12 tribes are complete. We get a list of their names again here in 22 to 26. And again, it, it says to this day, when it's talking about her grave, uh, would imply that the Israelites are living in this land again in, in Bethlehem. Um, so now we, we do, right, this is a good end, end for Jacob's story is that we now have the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 who will become the 12 tribes. That's, that's complete. So we can, in a sense, move on. Now we get the one last little note that's kind of surprising again, that Isaac, Jacob's father, dies. Uh, I say it's surprising because he seemed like he was really close to death way earlier in the story, like 20 years earlier as, as Jacob, right? That's when he stole the blessing, pretended to be Esau. Isaac seemed like he was about to die. Um, whether that's chronological or not, it's probably not even the point. Uh, what seems most important to me is to look who's there. And it says that Esau and Jacob bury their father. Um, so again, there's, there's some sense of reconciliation between the two of them. And even though they're not completely at peace or living together, uh, they're not trying to kill each other. They, they can come back together for this important moment. And and we're not going to read it, but chapter 36 is just a whole list of all the descendants of Esau um, in, in the country of Edom. That's another name for him. Again, why would they put this in here unless they're saying, you know, as much as Israel, the country, and Edom, the country, fight with each other later on, we're still related. And that still matters. Um, and so Genesis is, again, reminding Israel of, of all the ways they are connected. Even though they have this unique calling, they're not uh, completely separate from their world, from their context. So that's Jacob. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot you can take away from it. Um, but to me, the big story is it's not about Jacob. It's about God, because Jacob, almost more than anyone else, is undeserving of God's blessing. And yet God has made a promise so God is going to stick by that promise. Um, God's promises are not up to us, which is good news. Now, we should try and live in a way that blesses the people around us. That's what uh, Israel is meant to be. If you go back to the calling of, of Abraham in the first place. But uh, the blessings of God are not just dependent on, on us getting everything right. Uh, God it will be faithful because that is who God is. And that's ultimately who Genesis is about. And that's who all of Scripture is about. Well, thanks, everyone. Next week, we will pick up uh, with the story of Joseph and shift into kind of the final major section of this book. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.